Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. If you're visiting with us and using a pew Bible, you're more than welcome to take that home with you. If you'd like a Bible, uh, please feel free to do that. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 748. Page 748 in the pew Bibles. We continue here in the book of Daniel. As you just think of what we've just sung, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. We have nothing if we don't have Christ. That's true. You might have everything else that this world could offer, and if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So as we're here, and as we look at the book of Daniel, and as we look at all these minute details of history and such, as we take a step back and look at God's overarching plan, we must keep Christ in our minds. That without Christ, the things that we read can be scary. It's a warning. But with Christ, it's hope and peace and a settledness in the midst of difficult things. So let's pray, and then I'll read a portion of our passage this morning, and we will look together at Daniel chapter 11. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship you. Lord, we've sung the word. We've read the word. We've prayed the word. And now, Lord, the word will be preached. Lord, may we not divorce the worship of you from your word that it has been revealed to us about who you are, your character, your activity in history. But yet, through the word, Lord, we are... We are caused to give you praise and glory and honor. Lord, and as we hear your word this morning, as we seek to understand this difficult passage, Lord, though we may have more questions, may we have and settle this knowing the fact that you are sovereignly in control of the events of history. Lord, and as we look to the future, we know the ultimate end is that you win. For the victory has already been declared through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us now to remain steadfast and movable, always abounding in your work that you've called us to, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. pray this in your name. Amen. If you found your way to Daniel chapter 11, our introduction verses are actually going to be from Daniel 12 verses 1 and 2. So if you turn the page there, <coughs> I will read the first two verses by way of introduction this morning. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Where we are at here in the book of Daniel, we are getting close to the end, to the conclusion of Daniel's writing, right? Most of us are familiar with the first half of Daniel. Those are the stories we love. Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar getting turned into a beast of some sort and coming back. The handwriting on the wall. Eating a vegetarian diet and actually seeing results, right? <laughs> in chapter 1, Daniel and his companions. But as we look here at the book of Daniel, 
our big idea, our theme over the whole book is this, is that it's God's plan, God's power over human plans and human powers. The nation of Israel has been taken into exile around 586 B.C., Because of their sin, they've rejected God and they've followed idols. They've committed adultery, physically and spiritual adultery against God. They've followed after false gods and God is judging them based upon his agreement, his covenant with them in Deuteronomy. They have turned from God and followed their own ways and God is judging them. And so he takes them from Jerusalem from the promised land, and he takes them into Babylon, the modern-day Iraq. And as they're there in Babylon, the people are thinking, what's going to happen? God, do we have a future? Do we have hope at all? And the book of Daniel reminds the nation of Israel that through these prophecies and through God's action, there is a future, there is a hope. Now, it comes with difficulty, It comes through way of conquering in other kingdoms. But in the end, there will be a restoration and a full consummation of God's kingdom. And as we've looked through these examples of God's sovereignty through Daniel's life, as we've looked from chapter 7 on of God's sovereignty through the rising and falling of nations, we come to chapters 10, 11, and 12, which is one thought, one, one unified section spread over three chapters. And neither you or I have the patience to sit through a sermon on all three chapters. (laughs) So we've split it up over three weeks. We've already looked at Daniel 10 a few weeks ago. We're going to look at Daniel 11 this morning, and next week we'll conclude with Daniel chapter 12. But these last three chapters are the minute explanation of Daniel's 70 weeks from chapter 9 of the restoration of the people to the land of the rising and falling of kings and the rising of an enemy of God and then the rising of the ultimate enemy of God that will precede the ultimate return and victory of God in Christ through his second coming. So as we look here at chapter 11, we are going to look at the main content of Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision, as we understand, we look at prophecy in the Old Testament. It's not exactly the most straightforward thing in the world. There are some principles to understand. There's a lot of imagery used. There's a lot of language, in a sense, in a poetic way to describe different things. And sometimes as prophecy was given to the prophets in the Old Testament, there was a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Some things were completed in the time that the one who received it would see, but yet there were some things that looked future. And there were gaps of time that were not seen by the prophet himself. And we have evidence of that today in Daniel 11. The first part of Daniel 11, there is a near fulfillment. It's already been completed. But yet, then we switch to another section, which by no means has been completed, based upon the description of the time. So as we look here at Daniel 11, this middle point, we've looked at the vision of the man in Daniel chapter 10. We're going to look here at the vision of the north and south, these kingdoms described. And then next week, we're going to look at the vision of the end, of the final vision here. But our big idea is this, through all these three chapters, is that the spiritual warfare that's been present, as we think of the rising and falling of nations and conflict between nations, it's more than just 
human conflict. There's a spiritual warfare going on. God's at work and there are spiritual forces at work. And this will continue to be present until the final consummation or completion of Christ's kingdoms, Christ's kingdom when he returns for his second coming and sets up his reign and rule forever. So as we look here at Daniel chapter 11, under the second point of our big idea, the vision of the north and the south, we're going to look at a near fulfillment, a far fulfillment, and then a final fulfillment to these prophecies. So as we look here at Daniel 11, this is the content that Daniel himself receives from this messenger angel in Daniel 10. And he records it for us. And as for me, in the first year of Darius Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is the angel speaking here. And he says, I will show you the truth. He's going to explain this to Daniel, what is going to happen. He says, behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So as we think of the near fulfillment here, the angel begins by describing the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. You might know it as the Persian Empire. And he describes several kings. These kings culminating in Xerxes, who sets himself up against the Greeks. If you're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, Leonidas and his 300 Spartans holding the pass, even though there was more than 300 Greeks there, there were several thousand, but the Spartans get all the glory. Uh, they battled against Xerxes. And then there was another battle, the Battle of Marathon. And that's actually where we get the term Marathon from, because an individual ran from the battle back to Athens a certain distance. You know what the distance was? 26.2 miles. And legend has it is that that Greek runner completed that marathon in one hour. That might be exaggerated over a few thousand years. And so these Persian kings rise up against Greece. That's verse 2. So in the short term, we have this description of, Greek, of, of Persia. Becomes powerful, far richer. And they come up against the kingdom of Greece. But then a mighty king, verse 3, shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Who is this king? This king that arises to stand against Persia is Alexander the Great. We've already learned these things from chapter 8 in Daniel, if you're with us. The vision of the ram and the goat. Alexander the Great was this young ruler who united the Greek city-states under the banner of Greece, and conquered the whole known world. And his kingdom, over several years, just expanded and exploded from Greece into Italy all the way to India. And legend has it that when he reached the Indus River Valley in India, Alexander wept, for there was no more nations to conquer. And so he comes to power and he overcomes Persia, and this great mighty king. But it says in verse 4, As soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds. The four winds. Do you know how many kingdoms Alexander's great kingdom was divided into? 
four. History records this for us. He had no living heirs. They either died or were killed. And we read that at the end of verse four is two. They were divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Not according to the authority with which he ruled, meaning it wasn't his own authority that continued it on, but rather it was split into four. And his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So that's where we're at in this vision. Persia rises to power, great and mighty, but they are overcome by Alexander the Great. And his kingdom is divided into four kingdoms to his four generals. And from those four kingdoms, we get the next set of events, the king of the north and the king of the south. Alexander's kingdom was split into four. But the two main ones were two families. One were the Ptolemies. It's a classic case of a P not making any sound, right? Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. The Ptolemies of Egypt, that would be the kingdom of the south. And then you have the kings of the north, which would be the Seleucid Empire. And this would be based out of Syria, just to the north of Israel. These are the main combatants then in the rest of chapter 11. So anytime you hear the south, think Egypt. Anytime you hear the north, think Syria area around Israel. <coughs> These two will go back and forth here in verses 5 through 20. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through verse by verse all of these descriptors here. If you have a quality study Bible or a good commentary, they will record for you the, uh, the events and what they correlate to. There's a lot of minutia here, a lot of this king, then this king, and this king, and then this king. Just keep this in mind. Verses 5 through 20 record for us five kings of the north and five kings of the south. At the beginning... The kings of the south have the upper hand. The kingdom of Egypt, they have the power, Ptolemies in Egypt. But over time, they lessen, and the kingdom of the north rises to power, the Seleucid Empire. And they go back and forth, and sometimes they agree, sometimes they intermarry, and sometimes they're at each other's throats. It's fascinating if you have the time to look through all the events and how they have come to pass. Uh, of all these things that God is prophesying here to Daniel through this vision. They are future to Daniel, but they are in the past to us. That brings us to verse 20. Verse 20 records for us the reign of Seleucus IV. And it says, He shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor. This is Seleucus IV of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Seleucus IV, which is the final ruler of the kingdom of the north, the Seleucid Empire, before the special person we'll talk about, he was overcome by Rome. He really lost all the power and authority that he had. He came to nothing. And it wasn't through military conquest or anything. It just, he just lost power. Nobody, nobody listened to him anymore. But now we come in verse 21 to a special individual that we've already learned about in the book of Daniel. This is the individual known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. 
Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This is the little horn from Daniel 8. This is the little horn from Daniel 8. And if you remember what we learned about the little horn in Daniel 8, that he hates God and he hates God's people. And his heart is set against the Jews. He is a manipulative individual. He does not come to power by military strength, but by espionage and playing the political game. And we read about this here. The shift in the narrative shows that this king seems to be unlike any of the other kings. And that specifically, he has it out for God and his people. Verse 21, in his place, the previous king, shall arise a contemptible person. This is an evil person, a wicked person whom royal majesty has not been given. Antiochus IV came to power through poisoning people, through political uh, maneuvering. He did not have military strength. He was not of the royal line. He basically saw an opportunity and he took it. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He used his manipulative skill to gain the power that he had. And we look at his character here. Armies shall utterly be swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. This prince of the covenant is the idea of the ruler of the Jews. Even the Jews are swept away before him. He overcomes all with a small force. Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. Scattering among the plunder, spoiling the goods, he shall excuse me, devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. So we read here of his character. He sets his mind against Egypt, against the south. And Antiochus wages war against the kingdom of Egypt and the Ptolemies. And he has victory for a while. Verse 25 through 28, we read of this conflict against the Ptolemies and his subsequent persecution of the Jews. Look at verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That term holy covenant refers to the Jews, to the people of God. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So as he goes to Egypt and conquers on his way back, his heart is set against the Jews. And there is historical record of his persecution, of his killing thousands of Jews. And then in verses 29 through 35, we read specifically of this persecution against the Jews. It reiterates his heart that is set against God and his faithful followers. Though some join him. Some join him. Some Jews join him. Um, If you look at verse 30, he looks to the south, but yet ships are arrayed against him, and he's afraid, and he turns back, and he's angry. And so he takes action against the Jews. He takes out his anger against the Jews. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So those Jews who are loyal to him, forces from him shall appear. And what does he do? This ruler profanes the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. Antiochus, under his reign, stopped temple worship. If you think of the sacrifices in the Old Testament and the priests in the temple, 
they were continuing after they'd been reinstated, but Antiochus comes and, and he does away with them. And not only does he stop the sacrifices and the offerings, he profanes the temple by setting up an altar to Zeus, to his God. And he desecrates the temple. But yet he is still up to flattery and seducing people who violate the covenant. Look at verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The faithful Jews stand against him. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. And though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. We know from history that Antiochus was set against the Jewish nation, but the faithful Jews rebelled. And as they rebelled, they overcame his armies. And in overcoming their armies, he was so overwhelmed by despair that he, he actually died. Antiochus Epiphanes did. He died not by sword or by poison or anything like that, but he was overcome with his circumstances and died. And we read here that this happens. And this idea of persecution and struggling continues until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Verses 2 through 35 refer to things that have happened already. Daniel is seeing them in the future, but as we look, we can corroborate these events with historical documents, with historians recording for us, and we see how these things have come to pass. Through the reigns of the kings of the north and the south and Antiochus, all these things have come to pass. But as in verse 36, we come to a section that has not come to pass. And how do we know that? Because what we record, what is recorded in verse 36, the extremeness of it has not been seen. We know that this is an individual different than Antiochus IV because what is recorded for us here describes somebody who is completely different than Antiochus, though very similar. He's in the same vein as Antiochus, this ultimate enemy of God that we would understand to be the Antichrist. It transitions to speaking of a king different than Antiochus. The descriptors in these 10 verses are distinct from what we've read before. They refer to a king who comes before the return of Christ during the time of great distress. This is the little horn of Daniel 7. This is the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is the Antichrist in 1 John 2. And this is the beast of Revelation the man that we read of here in the end of chapter 11. So in verse 36, it says, This king shall do as he wills. <coughs> he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. So this man sets himself up against God, and then really against every god. Antiochus, and this king that we've been reading of before, still worships gods. He worships himself, yes, but he also worships these other false gods where this man is different. He does not worship gods at all, but rather himself and his own power. 
Verse 36 says that he will prosper till the indignation or the sin is accomplished. This ultimate rebellion against God. Verse 37, we read that this king, this man will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by woman. So gods of his fathers, Antiochus did. He worshiped the, the gods of the Greeks, but this one does not. And he doesn't worship the one beloved by women. That would be the Messiah. The Messiah in the nation of Israel was known as the one beloved of women because the women wanted the Messiah to come from their line. They wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. He was the beloved one, the anticipated one. But here, this king rejects all false gods and the one true God. He shall pay attention to no other God, and for he shall magnify himself above all, verse 37. And as we read in Revelation and these other descriptive passages, this would refer to this Antichrist, this ultimate enemy of God who is leading this final rebellion against him. But he does honor the God of fortresses instead of these, meaning military strength, power, might. That's where his hope is found, not in spiritual gods, but in warfare. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Everything that he has, he gives towards this military might. He's a man of war. He's a wicked, evil individual who is out for blood. And he shall fight against the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. So he does use other gods to fight against others. But those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. His evil character, his animosity towards the one true God. He magnifies himself. He disregards other gods. He uses people. He's all about himself and to gain an advantage. And those who help him, he throws a little piece of bread to. But in verses 40 and 45, we read at the time of the end. So verses 35 through 39 describe his character and his, his countenance. But now we read about what happens. And we read in this section that this has not happened. This is not found anywhere in the life of Antiochus. And so it lends itself to understanding that this is somebody yet to come. The king of the south shall attack him. A group of people from Egypt of some coalition of some sort attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. So another uh, group of people from the north. I think the, the king of the north is distinct from this this Antichrist, because he is not equated to the king of the north in the preceding verses. But north and south, you have this sandwich, and many come upon him, and they pass through countries, and they overflow, and they pass through, and they come into the glorious land that is Israel, right? The promised land. And tens of thousands fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main parts of the Ammonites. So we see how there's this great battle between the north and the south, and Thousands and thousands fall, but there are some that remain who endure, whether they hide in certain areas in the wilderness. But it's this great battle between these different pagan nations. Verse 42, this Antichrist reaches out his hand against these countries and against the land of Egypt. It shall not escape. He becomes ruler of all their gold and silver. He conquers them. 
and all these nations in Africa, the Libyans and the Cushites that follow in his train. He demonstrates full authority. But news from the east and from the north shall alarm him. There's still others set against him. And he goes out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He hears these wars and these rumors of wars and he goes out for destruction and he puts his tents there between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. It's Jerusalem. But yet, what is his end? It comes to an end with none to help him. We would understand that his final fall is at the battle of Armageddon between the plain and the sea when the Antichrist is ultimately defeated with the return of Christ. This far fulfillment, this time of the end, this ultimate enemy of God and his people, he is a man of wickedness, of evil, and his power is unlike anything we've seen. You cannot look at this passage and say, well, I can see that a little bit in Antiochus, maybe a little bit, but not to the full completion that it will be in the future. When this man, this Antichrist, comes and sets himself up against God. We need to be careful when we need to read a passage like this as this is a broad description of the future. This is a broad brushstroke of what's going to happen. And though there are details, we do not have every single detail. We must be wary of saying, well, I know who the king of the north is. I know who the king of the south is. I know who this is. I know who this is. Now we can look at the world and we can see conflict happening. There's conflict happening right now in Israel between the Palestinian group attacking the Israelites and all the wickedness that's happening. But as terrible as that is, that's been happening for generations. It's nothing new. In Mark 13, Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but that does not mean the end is near. That's just the flow of human history. So we need to be careful to say with such certainty, well, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Now we see how things are always moving against God and his people, but we need to temper our proclamations about what exactly is going to happen and who these people are and who this is and, well, Putin's this and I watched this video on YouTube and this and that and this. We need to slow our roll with those things and understanding we know the broad brushstrokes and God could be moving these nations as he sees fit. But a day with the Lord is like a thousand years with us. <laughs> It may still be a while. We don't know. But what we do know is what the ultimate outcome is, of where our hope should be found. And we see this here in the final fulfillment in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael. Michael is an angel. He's the archangel. He's the, the prince who has charge over the nation of Israel. It's God's chief lieutenant of his spiritual forces. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen or it has been since there was a nation till that time, this great day of tribulation. Michael goes out to fight for the people. But at the end of this time, your people shall be delivered. And look at this. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book shall be delivered. This is those who are true believers in God, specifically believers in Jesus Christ, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And many of those who have sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is a, a phrase referring to resurrection. 
When the time of the end has come and it's complete, there will be a resurrection. And those who are in the book of life, those redeemed will be raised from the dead to everlasting life. But those who are not redeemed, those who are unbelievers, will be raised from the dead to everlasting contempt and shame. Have you ever thought about that? Every person that has ever lived will be resurrected from the dead. The difference is where you will spend eternity. For those who know Christ as their Savior, who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life, they will enjoy everlasting life. But those who do not are raised from the dead to suffer everlasting shame and contempt forever. And those who are wise, those who have trusted Christ, these ones who are followers, they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. They shall be glorified. It's the hope of every believer that after death comes life, eternal life, glorious eternal life. They shall shine the brightness of the sky. Those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. This is the ultimate hope that through conflict, through nations rising and falling, through all of this bloodshed and war, there is a final victory and it's God's final victory and the final deliverance of his followers. That those who know Christ will receive that resurrection, that glorification, to enjoy him forever. And Daniel is encouraged, verse 4, to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. This idea of shutting up the words and sealing the book means to complete it and to keep it. It does not mean to hide it. I was reading one author this week, and he was implying that Daniel was to hide the book until the end of the time. No, that's not what the angel is saying. Seal it, keep it. Keep it safe so that while these things are happening, people will be encouraged. People will continue on because they will be forewarned and know that God is going to be faithful through this and know that many shall run to and fro through life, but knowledge shall increase as these things occur. This chapter is a bit like drinking from a fire hose. You're trying to gather it all in. There's a lot of content. It's really hard to preach this. Uh, I'm thankful for Daniel. I'm going to be look forward to being done after next week for a while. But as we take a step back and look at chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, some things to keep in mind, some points of application. First off, God is real and is all-powerful and is all-knowing. He demonstrates this through this prophecy. God is real. He is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing. It's demonstrated through this vision, through him knowing the future and him bringing about the future to pass. God's all-knowing and all-powerful. He is truly the one who is sovereignly working all things behind the scenes. Secondly, for those who live through this time that we've read about, about the kings of the north and the south, and even now as we suffer different things. These things are recorded for us to give us hope knowing the end. We know what the ultimate destination is for those who know Christ. It's not one of suffering forever, but there will be a day of vindication and glorification when we will enjoy and rest and have peace in the new heavens and the new earth forever. 
Third, as we look at these prophecies and compare them with history and see how things have come to pass, we can trust God and trust his word. The trustworthiness of God's word. So just as we can trust God through the proving of these prophecies, we can also trust God to know that he's right when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. To forgive others as you have forgiven, been forgiven. To husbands, love your wives. And to wives, love your husbands. Just as God is trustworthy in these prophecies, he's also trustworthy in his commands for us as New Testament believers. We can trust God and trust his word. Fourth, and finally, we can look to the future with hope for the glorious resurrection for believers. It is a reality. You know, Jesus was not raised from the dead when this was written. And already the resurrection is hinted at. Daniel might be saying, those who sleep will be raised? Like, how's that going to work? You already have hints of, of Jesus' resurrection here, this foreshadowing. The coming glorious resurrection is real. It's for, those, it's for everyone, but it's especially special for those who are believers. And then with that, the final eternal victory for God. The final eternal victory for God. In the end, God wins. We live life differently because we know the outcome. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's so appropriate. For those who enjoy sports, one of the fun things about sports is not knowing the outcome, the back and forth, who's going to win, how's it going to happen, are the Hawkeyes going to score more than seven points? Probably not. You know, things like that. <laughs> Even yesterday, listening to the Hawkeye game, are they going to get enough? They're ahead. Is it going to be enough? I don't know. Back and forth. But I use this illustration going back and watching a game that's already happened. The ups and downs. Think of the Cubs World Series. The Cubs go up. They lose a few games. That final game, they, they get a few runs, but then they don't. And while it's happening, you don't know the outcome. But now, seven years looking back, you can watch highlights of the game and you watch it with a totally different perspective because you know the outcome. Something bad might happen, but I'm not fretting, are the Cubs going to come back as I'm watching highlights on YouTube? No, I know they come back. So just as we look at life and look at the ups and downs and what's going to happen, I don't know. We do know what's going to happen. God's going to have the ultimate victory. And so while there are ups and downs and difficult things that people have to live through, we know the ultimate end. And therefore, we live life differently through those difficult times. We have peace we have hope, we have rest, we have security through Jesus Christ as we look to trust God for the future. So may we rest in the promises of God. May we look forward with hope to what he's going to do. May we have endurance through the ups and downs of life, knowing that even though things are hard, even though victory looks bleak, we know that in the end, God let us continue forward proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ the hope of everlasting life and the complete supremacy and sovereignty of God in all things. Father we thank you for your word we thank you for this difficult passage that though it's difficult to understand Lord it does bring hope 
We can see how you have worked in history and how you will work in the future. Lord, may we commit ourselves to your sovereign care, knowing that if we are held in your hand, though difficulties may come, we have no reason to fear the future but to hope. Lord, we thank you for the ultimate victory that was secured through Jesus Christ, and we look forward to its full consummation when he returns. We pray in his name. Amen.